The Deep Dive with Nick Baby. Welcome to the Deep Dive Podcast with Nick Babel. I'm your host, Nick Babel. My guest today is Ultimate Fighter, Season 1 alum, former UFC middleweight title challenger, and graphic novel author of the Zombie Cage Fighter series, uh, Nate Quarry. Nate, thanks for doing the podcast. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for hounding me until I was able to, to clear some time for this. Things get crazy around here. Definitely. I totally understand. And you got little kids now, so. Yes. <laughs> um, so I just thought it'd be fun to bring up, like, uh, you and I have been, like, social media friends for a long time. I think on Facebook... 2008 2009 somewhere around there i just i was a fan of yours from you know the ufc and the ultimate fighter and i added you and you know we've talked a, a few times over the years with message yeah. um so it's just kind of cool how that that worked out and yeah. uh you know with the zombie cage fighter uh thing i, I sent you some rough drafts i i had my own Mine's not a graphic novel. It's more of an anthology book series I've been working on. I, I've been working on it 10 plus years. It's, it's zombies and it has some, you know, MMA stuff in it too. Um, totally different story than yours. I mean, obviously, but uh, so it's just kind of always felt that kinship with you with, with that whole thing. And yeah, man, um, shared interests. Yeah, definitely. And uh you know, just randomly too, with following you on Twitter, we we kind of have a lot of the same political ideas too. So, kind of left. It says on your Wikipedia, which I I don't know. It says you're a socialist, but I don't think <laughs> you're, you're more kind of like democratic socialist, really. Yeah, and it's funny because somebody uh, was messing with my Wikipedia page yesterday. A friend of mine. And so I went and looked at it for the first time and saw that I was listed as a show socialist. And I was like, dude, no, that, that is not the case. Uh, but anytime somebody says, I hate the evils of socialism, my response is always, so what socialist programs here in America are you looking to cancel? Social Security, Medicare, you know, everything that we pool our money for that we are required to purchase, whether it's the military, the police, the schooling, it's a democratic socialism and, and we yeah. live in a capitalist country, but <clears throat> we're getting to the, the late stages of capitalism where there is no, no one overseeing these things. And you have the GOP all the, all the time talking about, well, we want small government. No, you don't. No. If you wanted small government, you'd be talking about, well, how can we reduce the military? How can we reduce our massive prison population? Let's not worry about telling women what they should do with their bodies or what adults should put into their bodies. Uh, you want small government when it suits you, when right. you're a large corporation, you want no one telling you that you can't go ahead and rape the land and, and ship oil and pollute everything. But as soon as someone else says something like, Hey, why don't we do uh, a better job of sex education throughout the schools? Wait, man, no way. That, that, that just doesn't work for me. So, or, or how about people don't have to die because they can't afford to go to the hospital or, you know, Boy, that's just, that's just crazy, crazy things talk. like that, you know, crazy yeah. socialist talk. <laughs> and the way they make it sound, it's like, 
all of these Europeans and the Australians and the Canadians under these socialist healthcare programs, like they're just dying to come to America and spend $1,500 a month for healthcare insurance that then has a $5,000 deductible and a massive copay every time you actually have to use it and go see the doctor and then won't even get into the, the incredible cost of our prescription drugs here. It's just, it's insanity. And the way that, that our citizens here have been conditioned to think that this is the right way to do things, that the CEO of a health insurance company making 10, $15 million a year is what's best for us. Yeah. That's just ridiculous. I agree. It's just insane. And I know more people now that actually do go overseas to get medical stuff done because the plane ticket and the procedure is cheaper than doing it you know in the states it's just i had a friend that got a i don't remember what it was it was a rare virus or something like that it would have been literally cheaper for him to fly to thailand and buy the medication there and fly back than to buy it here in the states and dramatically cheaper i myself had surgery over in greece I had a back surgery over there. And to compare the two, I had back surgery in Las Vegas. I had a spinal fusion. The surgery ended up going great, but the hospital stay was horrific. The, the staff there did a terrible job taking care of me. I was in there for four days. Uh, a big portion of the time, I had a roommate with me that he was moving a big oak table and fell backwards and the edge of the table smashed him and shattered one of his vertebrae. And so for about, and he comes in in the evening, all night long, all I keep hearing is, okay, here's a new doctor on call. He needs to look at you. Okay, could you please be careful? I'm in a lot of pain and then just screaming over and over again. Now my, my surgery experience in Greece was essentially the same type of surgery, another back surgery, I had another level that had gone bad and I needed it operated on. I had a private room. It, it looked like the hospital of the future. It was just incredible. The recovery was incredible. It was phenomenal. And it was the same surgeons that work here in the United States. They just opened their own international surgery clinic over in Greece and right. they're still making good money. But the cost of the surgery, there was about a third or a quarter of what it was here in the United States. No, but most people don't, don't ever see things like that. They just are focused so much on what their world is and the, the fear mongering and the rage baiting that goes out there and, and blaming this person and that person for, for the way your life is and all these things. It's just, it's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, a lot of people have that mindset. I had it bad, so you should have it bad too. And, uh, and that is just that's the worst way to go through life. It is. And it's, it's just so depressing that, well, I was raised this way and I turned out okay. So you should have to suffer as well. Well, then you didn't turn out okay. Yeah, exactly. If you turned out okay. You would be saying, how can we end this cycle of abuse? No one should have to work that hard and still not make progress. And we see this throughout the decades as the middle class has shrunk. The 1% has gotten wealthier and wealthier. And to me, if I'm to overly simplify it, I think people's politics can kind of be decided by which do you think is worse? Is laziness worse or is greed worse? And if you're a Republican, you look at all the lazy people and, well, if they just got their shit together, they'd be able to make something of themselves. 
And if you ask a Democrat, well, these people are so greedy, they're hoarding all this money and they're suppressing the wages. And me, <clears throat> I'm somewhat in the middle where, oh, I've known plenty of lazy people, but I've known greedy people. So what happens if we take one lazy person? How does he affect society? Really not that much. He doesn't yeah. have a very good life. He may try to game the system with some housing or with some free food, or he may be on the streets, homeless, whatever the case may be. Overall, it doesn't affect society that much. Now, what if somebody's greedy and you have one person worth, I don't know, 150, 200 billion dollars who is then crushing small businesses around the nation, who is artificially suppressing wages, who is making sure that his workers don't get good health care, don't get to provide for their families, don't get to be upwardly mobile. That one greedy person affects the entire nation. And if you want to pull the Bible into all of this, what does the Bible say about greed? The love of money is the root of all evil. And yeah. it's so funny that the, uh, that the wealthy one percenters who are out there talking about God will save this and save that and find Jesus always seem to forget about that scripture where Jesus said, pay Caesar's things to Caesar. You know, go feed the, the hungry and, and clothe the poor. They like the Old Testament better. <laughs> the, Seems like you know. it sometimes. <laughs> um, so switching topics a little bit. Um, you grew up a Jehovah Witness um, and you eventually left the faith. I know you've talked about it quite a bit. You know, you did that Leah Remini um, aftermath documentary. Um, but I was wondering... My question with it, and I, you probably answered it somewhere, but I just don't remember the specific answer. What was the last straw for you? Or, or was there like a breaking point that made you decide to, to leave that? I'd say for me, it was unhappiness. I was just so unhappy with that lifestyle, being a Jehovah's Witness, and Boy, if, if, when I, somebody tweeted the other day how having a good upbringing, having a loving family, people don't realize what a huge advantage that is going out into the world because your parents are essentially your gods and are they providing you food, shelter, clothing, and love? And with that unconditional love comes the belief in oneself Oh, I failed. That's okay, son. I love you. Let's pick you back up and go again because I believe in you as opposed to somebody who doesn't even get out and try because they have so much self-loathing and self-hatred and being raised a Jehovah's Witness, you're, it's pounded on you all the time that you're a sinner. And a lot of religions are this way. You're a sinner. Uh, you, you need to be forgiven for God. There, there's that portion of it. But with the Jehovah's Witnesses especially, if at any point you decide you no longer want to be a Jehovah's Witness, you are disowned by your family, by the congregation, by anyone that you ever considered a friend or said that they loved you. And it's such a debilitating type of thing <clears throat> to grow up knowing that this is the way things are. And for me, it wasn't just in theory. It wasn't a boogeyman. I saw it firsthand. I saw it with friends that were disfellowshipped, excommunicated. And then you cut them out of your life. I saw it with friends when I was younger 
their parents would get this fellowship. Well, now I can't hang out with a, a friend whose parents are disfellowshipped. I saw it in my own family when my sister was disfellowshipped and didn't see her for 12 years, some, something uh-huh. like that, <clears throat> didn't communicate with her. And now that I'm disfellowshipped, I have not seen my mother in person in close to 10 years. The last time I saw her, she came up for my daughter's sixth grade graduation, who's going to be a senior in college this coming year. Oh, wow. Uh, so you, you have this huge burden on top of all of the indoctrination. My childhood was essentially going to church meetings three times a week, going out in the field service ministry work at least once a week, going to school, which was miserable because I couldn't do any, any sports, any activities, any clubs, couldn't have any friends. And then I had my menial job, whether it was fast food, janitorial, I uh, did a lot of construction, even in high school. <clears throat> so my childhood was pretty much lost. And I remember even telling my mother this, I think I was in my early 20s, that even if I was to live forever, as Jehovah's Witnesses claim is going to happen, the earth will be turned back into a paradise and the faithful will then live for all eternity on earth. I said, even if I live forever, I only get one childhood. Right. And this is how I'm spending it. And so in my early 20s, around 24 years of age or so, I was just so miserable and so unhappy. But it's all that I knew. It's all that I believed in. And I made the choice. I said, I would rather die at Armageddon than continue to live my life in such an unhappy, miserable way. And I I took a step outside of the organization. At this point, I was working for what's considered a worldly person. a job for someone who's not a, a Jehovah's Witness, essentially what it is. Yeah. Uh, and then I saw the UFC on TV and I joined a gym. And now all of a sudden, when the Jehovah's Witnesses came to me and said, oh, you don't want to be one of us? You don't want to be in the cult any longer? Well, we're going to take away your family. We're going to take away your friends. We're going to take away your job. We're going to take away all your association. My response was, well, I don't work for a witness, so I'm not going to lose my job. You're not going to take away all my friends because I have new friends from this new MMA training that I've been doing. And if my family chooses not to be around me, then that's on them. And as I've come to adopt the attitude, you know, they're much worse off without me than I am without them because I'm awesome. My life (laughs) is awesome. And, and who are they? They continue living that same miserable life with this this horrific burden of being god's chosen people and armageddon is coming any day now well not today but maybe tomorrow well i guess it didn't come today so tomorrow and you spend your whole lifetime waiting for something that never comes and then seeing the mental gymnastics that come from an organization that's a doomsday cult first off it was coming in 1914 then it was the generation that saw Uh, everything that happened in 1914. Then it was just people that were alive in 1914. Then it was 1975. And then there was adjustments there and they keep changing it. And they, they call it the light getting brighter as they understand further of God's teachings. And for those of us that have been in and out, it's really seeing this cult mentality and how they prey on the weak, whether it's in politics or religion or whatever the case may be, or an abusive relationship. And I, I spoke, a friend of mine did a documentary called The Truth Be Told, Gregorio Smith, and he asked me to be in it and share my story. 
and we went and we we showed the documentary a few times at at various theaters and at the end of it we did Q&A and I stood up before everybody and I said you know in my life I've seen people stay in loveless marriages because they're too afraid to be single I've seen people stay at jobs that they hate because they're too afraid to test the the free market I've seen people have watched their careers die at gyms that they were they were too afraid to leave and maybe go to another one. I said, every person here that was a Jehovah's Witness that left, you knew what was going to happen. <clears throat> you knew your family was going to disown you. Your friends were going to disown you. You could lose your job. You could lose your housing if you're living with a witness. You're starting from scratch. You're starting at zero when you walk out that door. Even emotionally, forget about financially mm -hmm. and with family support, you're starting at zero, whether you're 20, 30, 40, 50, and then trying to figure out how you're going to survive in this world that you've been kept a part of your entire life. You knew that was going to happen. And still you stood up and said, I'm willing to walk away if this is what it takes for me to be happy and live my own life. That is an uncommon thing. And that is a bravery and a strength most people don't have. And you should be thankful. And I, I want you to all say here, you are deserving of unconditional love and support. And I looked into the crowd and there was a woman with her head down in her hand, shaking her head no. And the man that was with her, I assume a significant other, had his arm wrapped around her and I could hear him saying, I could see his mouth moving saying, do you understand now? I do love you. I can love you. You are deserving of this love. But even for someone like myself, when you realize <clears throat> the love that you were given your whole childhood was really not even conditional love. It was just approval. If we do what, if you do what we tell you to do, we will approve of you and we will clap our hands when you do what we think you should. That's not love. Love is unconditional. It's a love that I have for my children. It's a love I have for my wife and she has for me. And, and seeing that now through my wife's family for the first time, and again, it's, it's one of those things. It's such a huge advantage for people that they'll never understand if they haven't seen it. I know friends of mine, we've had difficult relationships because they don't understand my perspective because we've been raised in such different ways. Everything that I wanted to get out and do, it was essentially alone. I was starting from scratch. When I joined the gym and started training MMA, it wasn't because I had some buddies there that were like, hey, man, this is cool. You should do this. It was me cold calling the gym and showing up by myself and taking a beating for three hours and then saying, you know what, I'm going to keep coming back here and just moving forward. It's, it's a difficult road to walk down. Yeah. I mean, I know this is anecdotal, but I, uh, I grew up with some Jehovah's witness. They were like in my grade or in the, you know, around me and they always seemed you know, obviously they couldn't celebrate Halloween or they could, they always have to miss field trips and all that stuff. And all of them grew up kind of, they've all left the church and they, they were all like suicide attempts and real, I mean, this one girl's really gotten, you know, she's doing better now, but I know I could say at least three or four of them that really kind of like ruined their at least they're growing up lives, but that whole cult mentality, a lot of people don't get that. And there's levels to it. You know, <clears throat> like you said, it's not just one religion, the Mormons, 
have their own thing and they'll just fellowship you and stuff too. They're a little nicer. They're not as doomsday about it, but, um, you know, I know people that have left them and then they can't talk to people that they, you know, thought they were friends with and stuff too. So yeah, yeah it's just a, yeah, it's definitely a tough thing. I was going to ask you and you kind of already answered it. Like how, how did you transition from not being able to do sports or participate in stuff to, to doing something like MMA, which, you know, out of all the sports you could, could do, that's, uh, probably one of the toughest i mean definitely physically and even mentally you know i uh i tried boxing a little bit i liked the punching i didn't like getting hit <laughs> and so i quit that really quick um but it's uh it's just interesting that that was that was the outlet that you look looked for why do you think mma well the biggest thing was was i was so angry I was so filled with rage looking back at a childhood filled with want and desire. I was in seventh grade at a school assembly and they put on a wrestling demonstration. And I was a nerdy little kid wearing garage sale clothes, holes in the jeans, big thick glasses, picked on all the time. And, and I'm in a cult, so I'm not really allowed to have friends there at school. So I'm sitting at this assembly and these two eighth graders put on this wrestling demonstration. And one was this really cool kid who picked on me on occasion. And the other was this really nerdy kid who I knew around the way. It seemed like a really nice guy. The nerdy kid beat the hell out of the cool kid. It was almost like it was scripted. It was so phenomenal. He's doing suplexes and, and just moving around the guy spinning. And I died inside that day saying, I would give anything to be able to do that. But if I went home and told my parents, I want to wrestle at school, hellfire would have come down from above and it wouldn't have just been the punishment that I would have received. It would have also been, this is not the way of Jehovah's witnesses. This is not God's way. Everyone there at school knows you're a Jehovah's witness. You're an embarrassment to God and what he wants for us. That is a hell of a burden to put on a child that they're carrying God's reputation to school over something like wrestling, that it is such a sin that you will lose God's love if you wanted to wrestle. So I had this, this burning rage in, inside of me and, and being picked on as well, knowing that if I was to retaliate at school, the beating I took at home would have been much worse than whatever happened there at school. But I loved, <clears throat> I always dreamed of being this strong man that nobody could push around that I could stand up for myself. And so, and I was not allowed to watch R rated movies, but every once in a while I would record off TV on a VHS tape, something like blood sport. And I wouldn't yeah. advertise to my parents that I just <laughs> recorded blood sport, but I, I bought a small weight set and I'd sit in my room and I'd lift weights and I'd watch blood sport or, or any other random cheesy Schwarzenegger movie or Steven Seagal movie back at the time. And I would just just fantasize about being so strong that I was never a victim again. And then when I see the UFC on TV and for the first time, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I need to be free. I need to follow my own passion. That's when I called up the gym and started training. It was an hour and a half of kickboxing, an hour and a half of jujitsu. 
the kickboxing was terrible in retrospect. <clears throat> it was just somebody moving around and holding basic combinations, another student type of thing. Right. And it was at Straight Blast Gym where I started. And their whole thing was, is you learn some basics and then you beat the hell out of each other. That was <laughs> it. You just spar. And so after the hour and a half of kickboxing, we do an hour and a half of jujitsu. And I get torn up so badly, tapped out over and over and over again. That as I mentioned, I, I think I mentioned I was sick for three days afterwards. My body was so torn down. But as I walked out of the gym, I said to myself, I'm going to keep coming back here so I can beat every one of your asses. And it, it, <clears throat> it had that fire inside of me, that, that desire to prove myself for the first time I was able to. And, and this was a big part of a lot of my fighting mentality too. I look across the cage and I see somebody and I'm thinking to myself, so you think you're better than me? Well, we'll see. <laughs> did and you uh, be able to, to find that out in front of a big crowd of people? Did you, did you have any amateur bouts or did you just go? I mean, I know you had fights before UFC. But it, was, it was such a different time. Yeah. I count my record all as one because technically I think I had one amateur fight. And it was a pancreas bout up in Vancouver, Washington. I didn't know who I was going to be fighting until I saw him across, across the ring from me. And from that point on, it was full-on pro rules, depending on what organization it was in, uh, fighting for a title, my second fight. So as far as I'm concerned, pretty much all of my fights were pro or pro rules. So yeah. my, my overall record is 18-4 and four, with three of my losses coming in the UFC. My one loss outside of that, Gustavo Machado in King of the Cage which was a war and I did some damage to him, but he got the decision. Uh, I won't say I, I just, I, I used to really disagree with the decision. Uh, <laughs> now I I've chilled a little bit, but I, I will say the promoter paid me my win bonus and oh, you nice. don't get a promoter to pay your win bonus. If he doesn't think you won yeah. we put on a hell of a show and I busted up Gustavo pretty good. Uh, yeah. That was a good fight. I think a lot of these newer MMA guys, they come from some kind of amateur background first and uh, they don't realize that you guys, you early guys, it was like, I mean, probably even before you fight it, it was even more wild west, but your early career was still, you know, like you said, just, it was pro rules, but was, uh, was your early fights, did they still allow like those soccer kicks and, and stuff like that? Like, Kind of depended on the organization. So right. when I fought in, uh, I think it was Extreme Challenge against uh, Drew McFedries before he made it to the UFC. So I'm fighting, and Monty Cox is potentially one of the biggest managers in MMA history. He managed guys like Jens Pulver, Tim Sylvia, Rich Franklin, Matt Hughes. He has a, a stable of champions that he brought up. And he would build his guys in smaller shows. So when they made it to the UFC, they were 50 and one or 50 and oh. And I'm facing Drew, Monty Cox's fighter, in Monty Cox's show with Monty Cox's referee. (laughs) So I've already got three strikes against me. And the rules were a combination of UFC and Pride. You could elbow on the ground, but you could also knee to the head on the ground as well. And so I kept just moving forward on Drew and getting the takedown, then I'd be in cross sides and I'd knee him to the body and then I'd bring the knee up over top and, and hit him in the head. 
it was, yeah, you never knew what the rules were going to be. There was a show that I, yeah, it was my second fight actually show up to the venue and they just decided then and there, okay, there's not going to be any heel hooks. Well, one of my (laughs) training partners had been training heel hooks for three months for this fight. So he was not allowed to do heel hooks and he's going up against this wrestler who's getting these takedowns within, I think 30 seconds, they clashed heads and my buddy, Eulen Moore, he got a cut in his forehead that was probably three inches long. Mm. And he's bleeding everywhere. And you can see him getting taken down and rolling in for the heel hook and then having to let it go over <laughs> and over again. And the first round was 15 minutes long. So at the end of the 15 minutes, he goes back to his corner. And the cornermen there who don't know what they're doing either are trying to tell him, okay, you need to make this adjustment, that adjustment. And Yulin says, I can't see out there. And he says, okay, we'll wipe away the blood. He goes, no, I literally am blind. I can't see. When he got hit so hard, he got a stinger and his vision went away. And he was fighting blind for close to 15 minutes in that. Then, so called a fight. He goes to the doctor, gets, gets his head stapled, gets his scalp put back together. And the promoter never paid the bill. So, <laughs> so his credit was ruined. It was, it was just crazy times. And my fight, that was the night I was fighting for championship, my second fight against somebody that I knew had fought many, many times. But fortunately for me, I was just so aggressive and stayed on. I never got hit. I just took him down, pounded him out type of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Early stuff was real wild west. Um, so when they – when they were booking the first season of the ultimate fighter, how did, how did you get that call? And like, what were your thoughts going into it? Like, were you? So how long of an answer do you want on this one? <laughs> every one of my, every one of my answers has a story, a crazy story. Oh, I'll take a story. Yeah. No, I love that season of the ultimate fighter. I, I was on it. Okay. Can you see that? Yeah. Roman numeral 30. So I'm 30 years old. I'm working in construction. I'm a journeyman sign hanger and the shop foreman at the sign shop where I work. So I would manufacture big gas station signs. I'd weld them, I'd wire them, I'd paint them. Uh, I'd do the install, uh, get the hole dug, set the poles, pour the concrete, all that stuff. I'd been there 10 years, two and a half months. And in that time, me and my boss, we'd both been angry, but not at the same time. I'd be angry and he'd be the calm voice or he'd be angry and I'd be the calm voice on this date. And it was, I think in April, 2002, we were both mad at the same time. And he was bitching at me about some job that I wasn't even a part of because I'd been sick for a few days. And I pointed that out and he said, do I need to go into the back and make sure every job is done right? Now, my boss was in his 60s and literally looked like Mr. Burns. (laughs) I was 30 and in my spare time was cage fighting. So I looked at him and I said, well, when you talk to me like that, you don't motivate me to do my job better. You make me want to get my shit and go home. And he looks at me and says, well, maybe you should. And I stood up. I walked into the back of the shop. I grabbed my toolbox and I drove off. And I called my coaches at the time and I said, I'm a full-time fighter now. Find me fights. I'm going to try and make a go of this. 
So now I've been excommunicated, disfellowship from Jehovah's Witnesses for six years or so at this point, <clears throat> fighting here and there. The most I'd ever gotten paid, I think it was around $500. I had a three-year-old baby. I had a mortgage. I was terrified taking this step with, with no parachute jumping out. Well, that summer, I get a call from my parents. And again, I, I don't generally talk to my parents because I'm no longer a Jehovah's Witness. Their caveat to that is if they need something or if there's a, a familial, a family emergency, they can contact you. Mm-hmm. So I get the call that my father has been diagnosed with a disease where his bone marrow has quit producing red blood cells. And so as his blood cells are dying off, he's essentially suffocating. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a, a process of a few months. So in December, <clears throat> I think end of November, December, I go and I live with my parents for the last three weeks of my father's life. And I help prepare for his passing. And it was, it was a brutal scene to see my father slowly fade away to, to go into his bedroom and see him passed out on the floor and then having to hoist him up and to put him back into bed, seeing my mother crying over him. It was, it was a difficult time. And we got to the point where I had done everything that I could do. And I told my mother, I'm contracted to fight in back East in Richmond, Virginia to defend this title that I have. I said, I, I feel like I've done everything that I could here. I've, I've helped you financially. I've helped you get your financial affairs in order. I've done all that we can. And my father moved into hospice care, I think the very next day or two, something like that. And so I told my father, father goodbye. And I flew off to Richmond, Virginia with Randy Couture. <clears throat> made weight that Friday, which is a whole story in of itself. It was winter. The guy wouldn't turn on the, the heater for the gym. So for me to cut four or five hours, took an, four or five pounds, took me about an hour and a half. It was ridiculous. And then as I'm rehydrating, I get the call that my father had just passed away. Yeah. And so Saturday comes and I, I always fight better anyways, when I'm in a bad mood, when, when I'm looking somebody who's trying to take my lunch money type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I remember Randy coming up to me and Randy fights on a very different mindset. And he says, let me see you smile. You're happy to be here and compete. And I just said, Randy, I'm not in a good mood. And the fight started and I ran across the ring and I hit my opponent three times and bounced out of the, his range. And I realized he doesn't have much footwork or know anything about range. And I bounced in him three more times. And he was six, four, had three times as many fights as I had. And the third time I jumped in, he did a, a body lock clinch. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm not even going to fight the takedown. You want it, you can have it. I'll beat you standing. I'll beat you on the ground. And he gets a takedown, falls into my guard, but he's still up a little bit. And I upkicked him in the face. And I upkicked him in the face again. And the third time I went to upkick him, he moved his head. And I locked in a triangle on him. And he based up, but he left his arm behind. And I just snapped his arm. And they said they could hear it pop from across the ring. And somebody who never taps was, was happy to tap. And I let go and I ran around the ring, just screaming my head off, letting all of the emotion pour out of me. And the short little guy came up to the ring and he said, Hey, my name's Joe Silva. I'm the matchmaker for the UFC. We've got this show that we're thinking about doing. I'm going to give you a call for it. And so when the time came, they called me up and said, Hey, we want to do a test for this show. Will you come down for a week and we'll do a bunch of filming. And I was pretty much out of MMA at that time. I was like, there's, there's real no opportunities for me. I'm not an Olympic wrestler. The UFC has got five shows a year. 
all yeah. everything's pretty small out there. I'm, I'm not going to get into pride. <clears throat> it's time for me to move on. But then this opportunity came up and I just said, all right, I'm going to double down again and see how this goes and, and refocused everything on this one last gas, very much like Forrest Griffin did. He was not willing to come because he thought he would lose his job as a, a police officer and wouldn't be able to get it back. And now here we are at the start of really relaunching the UFC and making it what it is today. Right. So the Roman numeral 30 that's tattooed underneath my arm is because I was 30 years old when that happened. And I wanted to always remember that time period and what I went through to, to make everything happen after that. And that, and that's, you know, other than Randy Couture who, famously got into it kind of late too in his life 30s kind of old especially nowadays for people to you know a lot of these guys are coming up fighting on the main cards at 21 22 and yeah uh, and you'll it, and this was something kind of led to my retirement i'm seeing guys that have been training as long as i have but i'm 38 and they're 24 yeah and you know like randy he had a wrestling background he wrestled all around the world when he was in the military he wrestled when he was in college he wrestled when he went back to college he was the wrestling coach so his whole life was based around combat sports my whole life was based around construction was insulating underfloors was painting houses was i was a framer for a year and a half then went into the design industry so for me, it was kind of doing this on the side, but having enough passion and desire for it that I was fine. I'd, I'd wake up in the morning, I'd go to the gym, I'd get my early conditioning workout in, I'd go to work for eight or 10 hours, and I'd be back at the gym that night for two or three hours of training. And I would just repeat, and every three or four months, I'd disappear for a few days and go fight and hopefully win and come back and repeat. Yeah, it's... Um... I mean, this wasn't one of my questions, but I was just thinking of this. Um, is Randy as good a guy as he seems? He seems like a really cool guy, Randy Couture. Yeah, it, you know, we're all human, so we all have our foibles. Right. And as you get to, to know the, the, the highs and lows of people, it is what it is. I, I learned a long time ago that it's, it's much easier to see someone and to admire their heroic ash, actions rather than to, to put someone on a pedestal. That's right. what, how I, I feel with like Hollywood actors. I don't want to know your personal feelings <laughs> and beliefs. When I turn on Guardians of the Galaxy, I don't want to be thinking about Chris Pratt's religious background. I want to be thinking, man, Star-Lord sure is great in this role. So, <laughs> but, but overall, Randy, he was, he was such a, a good, uh, such a good man to have, especially at, at some place like Team Quest, where he had the, the quiet confidence of a champion. He didn't have to prove anything in the practice room. So you could train very hard with Randy and still be generally safe. Whereas other guys, they always felt like they had something to prove. And that was their battleground in, in the practice room. And Randy, he taught me a lot about uh, competition and, and the athlete's mindset. Nice. Um, so... Um, so the first season of Ultimate Fighter was pretty crazy. Um, I mean, a lot of people don't remember this. I do just because was, this was the time I was getting into it. I think the first fight I ever really watched, you know, everybody always had that UFC one tape, you know, watching those right. crazy fights. But I think the first time I was getting into it was uh, it was Ken Shamrock versus Rich Franklin. Mm. Um, and it was on Spike, like early Spike days. 
And then Ultimate Fighter was a few months later. I, th- I think that's the timeline. It seemed like it was. You got it backwards because oh, it was it? Was the Ultimate Fighter, Rich, Rich and Ken fought on the Ultimate Finale. Oh, okay. So everybody from season one fought that night. Yeah. And then you also had Forrest and Stefan fighting. You had yeah. Diego and Kenny fighting. And those were the only two fights that were aired. And then the main event of Ken and uh, Rich. And so it was it was distressing to me that all of our fights, none of them aired. And I'm sitting here going, we're the ones everybody knows. Yeah. And you're putting this on free TV. Who made this boneheaded decision not to put us on? And I don't know how the ratings were, but I can tell you at the venue, after Forrest and Stefan were done and it was Rich and Ken, the place emptied out. Nobody knew them. Nobody really cared. You had to be a hardcore fan at that time to know who Rich was or who Ken was. Everybody that that came along was, we're invested in these guys from the reality show. And that's what made such a big difference was, for the first time, it wasn't just two guys beating the hell out of each other in a cage. It was, oh, Naquari is a single father and he's providing for his little girl. Or Loden Kincaid, man, he's kind of crazy and nutty. How's he going to fight? Or Forrest Griffin, his personality and stuff. You had an invested interest in all of these guys. And yeah. you want to see how they do. You had someone to root for and to root against. And that, and was, that was the big thing that made it. Yeah, that's kind of funny that in my mind, I saw that first and then I saw the ultimate fighter. But yeah, that's... He probably um, got the repeats. Yeah, probably. Well, I don't know. It was so long ago. I was just like... But... And you're right, though. That was what made the ultimate. That's why the ultimate fighter died for a while because they turned it into something else. But that's a whole another topic. But um, that's how it was. Those first bunch of seasons, even though like maybe like the first ten seasons, they really got into like the personal thing with the fighters, and you rooted for them, and you like I'm a fan. It was like that first season. You know, it was Josh Koscheck was the bad guy picking on. You know, Chris Levin and uh, that other guy. Um, Bobby Southworth. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, I was a big fan. Like I said, I was a big fan of yours from that season. I liked Chris Levin. I wanted to see him, you know, do good. And, um, and uh, I, you know, I've heard you tell some of the wild stories from, from that season. But I know a lot of people don't realize they hadn't really figured out the format of that show yet. They were trying to make it like a... <clears throat> Game, reality game show a little bit didn't you guys have like weird challenges or something yeah. you had to do and uh yeah. you know i think they got rid of that like after your season or maybe after the second yeah, it season. took a while they they did it for a few seasons i don't remember how long i remember the second season definitely had them yeah but yeah they came from reality game show ideas and so they started weeding people out based on just complete nonsense not fighting ability and then finally they had a moment and I remember the executive producer, I think it was, or director pulled us all into the gym and said, okay, we're going to break the rules here with reality TV. We're going to tell you what's going to happen because you're going to need to start getting ready for it. You're going to start fighting. So if you need to cut weight or whatever, we won't tell you who's fighting when or, or who you're fighting against, but that's, what's going to happen. And Bobby. I can't. How's that? Oh, yeah. Okay. 
So Bobby Southworth lost his shit when he was told that he's going to end up fighting because he was heavy and no one had told him beforehand that he was going to fight. Well, they didn't tell any of us. I just assumed it's a show about fighting. That's, that's why we're here. And so when they gave us the speech, our whole team who'd been losing all the challenges were like, thank God, if you're going to send me home, do it because somebody's better than me. Not because I can't carry Randy Couture's fat ass through Lake Mead faster than <laughs> the other team can carry Chuck Liddell's. And so we go home and then the producers, they, they call Dane and say, Hey, there's a lot of the guys here don't want to fight. They're rebelling against us. And then Dana shows up and gives this, do you want to be a fighter speech? I remember that. And, the rest of it. and there were so many speeches that I sat through and there was one back at the house where Bobby again, and, and you know, this is years ago and you're in a pressure cooker. It's this bubble with no music, no TV, no books, lots of alcohol and lots of A-type personalities. So a, a grain of salt with, with everybody there. But Bobby was, was upset that we were not allowed to leave the house and have one night out for ourselves and saying that he'd been, we'd been promised a night to ourselves. So he said, we're not going to do the show anymore. We're just going to sit around. We're not going to train. And I was like, well, this is nonsense. And I went to bed. Well, I think 11 o'clock at night or so producers show up, pull everybody in, yell at us for not being the good working bee worker bees that we should be and following the rules. And I sat there and listened to it for probably 15 minutes. And I stood up and I said, man, this shit really doesn't apply to me. Can I go to bed? I'm doing everything you asked me to do. And I made that very clear from the very first time that uh, I think it was Craig Pelligian was the head of at Spike that we were dealing with. And I told him, I'll fight whoever you want me to. I'll do whatever stupid activity you want me to. I just won't embarrass myself. I've got a little girl. I've got kids that may someday want to watch this. And if they see me acting a fool, that'll be an excuse for them. I want to set an example for my kids. So I'll fight whoever, whenever. That's why I'm here. But I'm going to bed. So there was just a, there's a lot of craziness and we didn't even know how long the shooting schedule was going to be. We were down there for around seven weeks for this. Yeah, it, it was, it was nuts. Yeah, and, uh, you know, then very famously, like you said, they had the, the card and the Forrest Griffin, um, Stefan Bonner fight that was, you know, legendary, uh, back and forth kind of really, you know, like you said, I don't think the UFC realized that people were invested in you guys. And they once they saw, I think Dana famously has said that the ratings, they were getting called by Spike, that the ratings were going up every round. People were calling people going, hey, you got to see this fight. And um, so then I think they finally figured out like, oh, you know, this is this is where it's at with that. And, you know, and it worked for him. I mean, it, you guys you know you guys built the ufc to to what it became you know even though it's kind of changed you know now but that those those early years those first 10 years of tough like are really good you know i you know i just big fan of that stuff um so just because uh, again i see myself chatting a lot and i want to get to <laughs> some of these questions um so Pretty famously, you were the first Ultimate Fighter alum to get a title shot. You fought Rich Franklin, um, who, like you said, people didn't know him at first, but he was one of the first big UFC champions. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I know you talked about this. It's a pretty famous knockout. And they had you in that clip all the time, mm-hmm. you know, when they were showing the thing. But do you, not to make excuses, but do you think going back, do you think that was too early for a title shot? Do you, do you regret taking that? I definitely don't regret it. That's for sure. Because if, if you sat me down today and said, hey, I've got a time machine, you can either never fight for the title or you can fight for the title and get knocked out. I'd say, man, knock me out. L- look at where I came from. Yeah. I started training at 24 with no athletic background whatsoever. And 11 years later, I'm fighting for the middleweight world championship, headlining a pay-per-view at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. Dude, I never dreamed this big in my life. I never thought I'd leave Salem, Oregon. So for me, striving for greatness and failing is always going to be better than always wondering what if. Of course, I I would like things to have gone better. Yeah, it was probably a little early on. And a lot of it was my mental development. I didn't know how to compete at at such a level. And I, I want to make this very clear. Every single one of my losses is 100% my fault. I did not deliver. Every single one of my victories is due to the team around me and the people that helped me win that fight. So I take a a complete responsibility for my loss. Of course, there's always factors that go into this. And one of the big factors were we show up in Las Vegas and we're, we're doing our rounds. I think it was Tuesday night or Wednesday night. And I'm starting to hit the mitts and I'm getting focused. And Robert Follis was my coach at the time. And Randy had left. He was now living in Vegas, had his own team going on. So he was nowhere to be found. And Follis said, what are we here for? And I said, I'm here to win a title. And he said, no, we're here to have fun. And that completely changed my mindset for the entire week. And you can actually see me laughing and smiling as I go out to the cage. You never saw that in any other fight of mine. Because I realized pretty quickly after that night, that's not my mentality for fighting. And and people ask me all the time, what should I be thinking as I go out to the the ring, to the cage? What should my mentality be? I say, man, you have to figure that out for yourselves. I can give you some examples of what may work for you and what, what won't. Randy needed to be relaxed and having fun and looking at the joy of competition. If he was nervous, if he was scared, if he was unsure of himself, he would freeze up. He didn't compete at his best. He's been competing since he was a little kid. So that's how he was able to regress. I didn't. Right. For, for Randy, MMA was his second chance after his wrestling career had ended. MMA was my only chance. I always fought best when I was scared, when I was hungry, when I was angry. <clears throat> and so going out for the Rich Franklin fight, I'm thinking, hey, I'm here to have fun and put on a good show. That doesn't work for me. Yeah. Now, looking it's, back, if I if I was to to redo that fight over again, maybe it would end exactly the same way. But my mentality would be, no, this guy's trying to make a highlight video of knocking me out. And if I'm not careful, he will. I need to move forward. I need to be in his face. I need to impress my will on him. But that's all hindsight. And we all have that. If you right. ask Rich the same question about Anderson Silva, I'm sure he'd have a completely different game plan, too. And I went when I, I think it was his very next fight and no it probably wasn't it was a fight or two later he fought uh, Anderson Silva for the title and Anderson just ragdolled him and knocked him out I think in the first round maybe the second and I you know you share something like a cage with somebody for a fight you're exposing who you are to the world and to your opponent 
I made my way into to Rich's uh, hotel room. And I just wanted to say, hey, man, you were a great champion. And I'm honored to have been able to step in the cage with you. And I wouldn't change a thing. And I, I said the same thing. If you gave me the option of never fighting for the title or, or fighting, getting knocked out, I wouldn't change a thing. And he looked at me and goes, Nate, I wouldn't change a thing either. I yeah. called him a dick and, and left. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was all in good fun. And uh, Rich was such a great champion. And it's, it's funny, anytime somebody wants to take a dig on me, they'll, they'll point out me getting knocked out for the title fight. And I'm like, well, thank you for reminding me of one of the highlights of my life, man. Yeah. I actually have that poster in my dining room right next <laughs> to two other posters that also have Rich Franklin on them. So, <laughs> man, I've got nothing against him or the way that the fight went. That's just sports, man. If you want, if you want a predetermined outcome, stick to pro wrestling. Yeah. This is what you get in the world of fighting. And I, I won a lot more than I lost. And yeah. uh, I'm sure that there's a few guys out there that have scars that every once in a while, when they look at him, they think of me and I've got 13 screws in my face. Thanks to Jorge Rivera. That's just the nature of the game, man. It's yeah. if you're going to play it safe and, and wonder what if you can stay at home and tell everybody how good you could have been. If you were fighting back in your day, well, those of us that we've really tested ourselves. And yeah. we know what it's like, and we're not afraid to lose on the big stage or win on the big stage. And like you said, your record 18 and four, that's an MMA. It's that's impressive. It's not boxing, you know, it's uh, <laughs> especially those days, MMA, you, you weren't fighting suckers, but that kind of leads me to my next question. The Caleb Stearns fight, which I'm sure you get asked about a lot, but I kind of have, I'm just wondering this because that fight was funny, obviously. I mean, for people that don't know, he, he backpedaled the whole time. He ran from you. It was the weirdest. I've never seen anybody do that in a fight. Did you ever find out years down the road or, or anything from anybody that knew him or trained with him or even from him, what was going on with that? Well, it's to me that the answer is pretty simple. Uh, so there's a, there's a long story involved with this one as well, of course. <laughs> so my previous fight was with Rich Franklin, where I get brutally knocked out. Well, three months later, my back is hurting so much that I can't even pick up my little girl, who's I think five at the time. And I end up getting this uh, uh, spinal fusion, an X-lift, extreme lateral inner body fusion that everybody said, if you get back surgery, your career is over. You'll never fight again. Forget about ever picking up your little girl again. Pat Militich famously told me, live with the pain, don't get surgery. Well, I opted to go ahead and get the surgery. And it was a brutal recovery. It was, it was tough to go from world championship caliber, conditioning, strength to somebody then suffering from a debilitating back injury to getting this big surgery and then recovering to an average person and then striving to go beyond that into elite athlete status. So I, 22 months is when my, my comeback fight was. And in preparation for that, I called up Joe Silva from the UFC and I said, all right, nobody thought it was possible. I'm ready to fight again. I want Caleb Starnes. And he said, that'll be a good fight. I'll call up Caleb. <clears throat> Joe calls me back and he says, yeah, Caleb won't take the fight. He says, you're not worthy to fight him because you just lost your title fight and he just won his random fight. Yeah. 
and I think it was Chris Lieben that he'd be in a very controversial decision. And that was the main reason why I called him out. I wanted to get some vengeance for Lieben. So Joe Silva tells me, we want you to fight Pete Sell in a rematch. And, and our first fight was stopped. Uh, you could say quickly. I, I think once I was on top of him, I wasn't going to hit him once and then stop. I would have pounded him out. But Pete had been very vocal that it was a quick stoppage and he wanted a rematch. So when Joe told me this, I said, all right, I'll fight Pete in a rematch. It's going to be a hell of a fight because he's been training the past two years. He's been on a win streak. He's got the champ, Matt Sarah, in his corner, but I'll beat him. And then after that, I want to fight Caleb Starnes and I'm going to end his fucking career. <laughs> and so <clears throat> I fight Pete Sell and it is a brutal war. He drops yeah. me in the second. I knock him out in the third. It was a great fight. I remember that one. Uh, fight of the night, third best fight of the year, according to the UFC rankings. Knockout of the night on my behalf, thankfully, which was good because I was completely broke. Uh, and then I had some other random injuries. I had to recover from that. And then I took a golf club to the face at a picnic. It wasn't an angry thing. It was a stupid <laughs> thing. Uh, so I had an orbital floor fracture that had to get recovered. So I had some time off there. And then Joe Silva calls me and says, so you want, you still want Caleb? Yeah. All right. I'm going to make him fight you. And so this whole way up to this fight, I just kept envisioning. We walk out to the ring. I'm going to get booed. He's going to get cheered because he's Canadian. We're fighting in Montreal, but I'm going to win the crowd over because I'm the only real fighter in the ring. What people didn't realize about Caleb is he's a bully. He's tall. He's long. He does really well when he's moving forward, but if you keep him backpedaling, he falls apart. He's the kind of guy that will look for an excuse. And so my game plan was I'm going to stay in his face the whole time. I'm going to shut down his game and then I'm going to be the winner. And after that, I'm going to give the Rocky four speech <laughs> Rockies in Russia. And so, and that's exactly how the fight went down. The, the first round, he was a little more aggressive. I thought he was going to shoot for more takedowns, but my hips are really heavy. I shut him down there pretty good. Uh, and then I just kept chasing him. And at the 10-second bell in the third round, I did my famous <laughs> rock hammer punch. And, and the whole reason behind that was I'd been at other fights where somebody wasn't engaging. It was Ivan Solovary and Nate Marquardt. And we fought on the same card on, I, I want to say, Ultimate Fight Night 1 which was hilarious because I fight. That was an I fought Pete Sell. And then I'm going out and sitting in the crowd and I'm sitting right behind Tim Sylvia. And I overhear Tim say, finally, the main event, Mark Hart and Solivary. Finally, we get to see some real fighters going at it. <laughs> and I went, Tim, come on, man. He's like, oh, no, 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 not you, Nate. <laughs> and then their fight was horrific. It was terrible. Yeah. Solivary did not show up that night. He was backing away the whole time. Mark Hart got angry, couldn't make anything happen. So the entire crowd soured. They were all upset when they left. And so as we're getting to the end of the third, I thought to myself, you know, I can't give you the fight you wanted to see, but even more than that, you want a memory. You want something to talk about in the years to come. That I can give you. Yeah. And then I did my, my rock hammer punch. <laughs> and when, there, when Kenny Florian was interviewing me at the end of the fight, I took the microphone and I said, you know, when I walked out, everybody here was booing me. And I, you know, I don't know how I felt about that. And you cheered for Caleb as he was walking out. But as the fight went along, you all started cheering for me. So I figured if you can change and I can change, 
anybody can change the Rocky Four speech. Yeah. And it, it just, it all came together. And to a short answer to your question was, uh, Caleb, he's just got the bully fighting style. Yeah. And I, I never trash talked him afterwards because, man, it is so stressful. Going and right. fighting in a cage in, in that arena, I believe it was 22,000 people. And you're training for three or four months. You may work three days a year, two days a year. All the rest of your time is spent preparing for that. And you have an off night. And that's supposed to define you for the rest of your life. Man, it is what it is. Uh, he got cut from the UFC. Uh, which you know that was the goal from the outset (laughs) you you talk trash to me i'm going to change your life but i I never wanted to to disrespect him after our business was done in the cage right and it was just it definitely was a memorable fight and like you said and probably wouldn't have been a memorable fight if you hadn't have done that the speech and the the punch thing and i just i was definitely watching that pay-per-view we watched the pay-per-views for years we'd always get groups together and uh, we were just laughing that whole fight. Like it was like, he wants, he does not want to be in the ring with him. I mean, like you said, the first round, it's like, you know, he tried taking you down and you tagged him a couple of times. And then after that, I don't know what happened. He was just like, I don't want to do this. I, I don't know. You, you think nowadays the t- the corner would have thrown the towel in and between the second and third round or something <laughs> he's done but um that's just that, that was a great fight um not you know it was a memorable fight memorable fight yeah the the tim crater fight was a great fight that was a that, great fight that was uh that was awesome he and he was a guy like two from the ultimate fighter um but i definitely wanted you to win but um I do remember that was so back and forth that fight. You guys were just teeing think, off on each I'd other. I'd be curious to see the fight stats on that because I think he probably hit me standing 10 times to every one that I hit him. Yeah. The second round, the third round, both opened the same way with him using my head as a speed bag. But I hit really hard and he yeah. was standing in front of me. And so I'd eat 10 shots. I'd hit him with one. He'd drop. He'd jump back up. I'd eat 10 more shots. I'd hit him with one. He'd drop <laughs> and then I'd be on top of him third round same thing it was it was a war and man that's that's probably my favorite fight because we both you know he took the loss but it was both a win for us that we really got out there and tested one another and pushed each other and we shared something among ourselves i I think it's pretty awesome to be and that definitely was fight of the night i know yeah yeah that was probably one of the fights of the year that year too yes that might have been the one that was the third best fight of the year. I don't recall. That might yeah. have been before the UFC did that. Or the Pete rematch is what I was thinking of first. Right. But I think that was before they did a full ranking. So, yeah, I think it was a Tim Crater fight that was the third yeah. best fight of the year. So, post-UFC, um, like we talked about a little bit in the beginning, you got into the world of graphic novels. Um, the Zombie Cage Fighter, which is the shirt you're wearing. Um so, yeah, so uh, how did that idea come about? Um, was it something you, you, you were working on that, like, while you're still fighting, right? If I'm not. Well, every gym has their own personality, and my gyms are usually filled with a bunch of old school nerds, and that's how I am. Now, my investments are 
spider-man comic books things like right. that I, I in in my childhood my escape was the star wars universe and the marvel comics universe and i just kind of carried that creative passion throughout my adult years and we'd be sitting around after practice talking about you know how an mma fighter would do in that world and obviously i'm not gonna be able to take on spider-man or dr strange or the hulk or anything but what if we get into more of the more realistic things? Now, a vampire would be tough, a werewolf would be tough, but a zombie, I think I could handle that. And so I started kind of brainstorming how you would fight a zombie and some stories about all of it. And I made an appearance on a network that no longer exists, G4, on their show, Attack of the Show, yeah. which I love that channel. I love that show. And they asked me at the end of my segment what I was working on now. And I said, well, right now I'm working on zombie cage fight. And the rules are pretty simple for humans, no biting for zombies, mostly biting. Yeah. And the producer came up to me afterwards and said, that's amazing. I want to see everything you've got. And so I shook his hand, looked him in the eye and said, all right, well, let me go home to Oregon. I'll put together a pitch and come back down because I had nothing other than an idea. So I went home and I just started writing. I had this idea for a story i knew how i wanted it to start i knew how i wanted it to end i just needed to fill out the middle and so i sat at my broke ass computer that would freeze every few minutes and i'd have to restart it and i ended up with this 22 page story i did a photo shoot with me as a zombie and i went back down to california and pitched it to them and they said it was awesome and it's all hollywood stuff so you never know where anything's gonna go and yeah. i just said you know i'm just gonna keep on pushing this and I did issue zero back in 2012 when I was a host on Spike TV's MMA Uncensored Live. Great show, by the way. Thank you. And uh, just sold, gave out issues there at San Diego Comic-Con and just had a blast with that. And my whole idea was, well, here's a taste of this story. Does anyone else think this is cool? And the complaint that I got from everybody was, yeah, so when's the next issue coming out? <laughs> so that was you know, nine years ago or so. It took a very long time for me to get the right team together because I needed the, the right artist, the right colorist, the letterer, needed somebody to help me turn my 22-page story into a six-issue graphic novel, cover artists, all that. And throughout these years, I'd be going and doing Comic-Cons or I'd be going to MMA shows and I'd set up a booth where I'd sell shirts, sell whatever comics I had at the time. And now we've gotten to the point where my wife set up a Kickstarter not too long ago and we're able to fund the printing of it. So we should be getting our our copies of the graphic novel here within a couple of weeks and we'll be able to fulfill all our Kickstarter orders, sell them or ship them all out. And then after that, we'll have them available on the website, zombiecagefighter.com with all the shirts and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I've already been contacted by a pretty large production company that's talking to me about maybe doing an animated series, something like that. Awesome. Well, it's all Hollywood talk. We'll see where it goes. Kevin Smith kind of uh, hit me up a while back. I think it was in 2012 or so. And I said then what I say now, hey, I'm, I'm just going to keep doing my thing, doing my shirts and telling my story. And if people like it and you want to be involved, here I am. So we'll see where it goes from here. But I could not be prouder of the book, the artwork, the team that came together to make this as a, re a reality. The cover work is done by Alex Horley, who's like a Frank Frazetta type artist. Yeah. And I have the actual painting that he created for my cover. It's just phenomenal. The interior pages by Travis Kotzebue. The, the helping me formulate the words on all the pages was Jamie Rich. It was just, a, just an incredible formulation. I was so fortunate. And then one of my own pop culture icons, uh, Randy Bowen. 
if you go into any comic book store in the world, there'll be a Randy Bowen superhero statue there, whether it's Spider-Man or Hulk or whoever. We became friends over the past few years, and he actually made a zombie cage fighter statue for me. Awesome. So I, I produced those as well. They'll be on the website available also. And a lot of Randy's statues, they'll do like a, a print run of 5,000 Hulk statues. And they're yeah. big, five pounds. Uh, I did 100 of the zombie cage fighter statues. They're a very limited run, and it, it's awesome. It's awesome. so exciting for me to see people getting excited about my intellectual property, my idea. Yeah. So you have a date yet for when it's going to be available on the website? Uh, I'm sure I would think sometime in July. Because awesome. hopefully we'll be getting the books here in a couple of weeks. Then we need to take care of everybody that was a part of the Kickstarter because uh, we allowed them to order it with a signature and all sorts of other options, T-shirts, statues, that kind of stuff. So we'll get all of them taken care of first and then put it on the website. So hopefully in July. Awesome. I can't wait. I'm definitely getting it. Um, so again, we talked a lot <laughs> and it's getting on, but. I did want to get into like a mini deep dive of the whole um, issue of a fighters union and MMA, the, the Ali expansion act um, and the UFC antitrust lawsuit. Um, you're one of the founding members of the class action lawsuit against the UFC um, for the way it's done business, basically creating a monopoly on, on the MMA world Um how did this come about and uh, what was your, why did you support it? Support it because I believe in it. Carlos Newton was friends with a guy by the name of Rob Macy and Rob was training at the gym and he was just kind of, he fell for all the, the UFC propaganda like so many of the fans do that these fighters have this great life and they're making millions. And then Carlos Newton starts explaining to him, no, man, we're broke. We're headlining these pay-per-views, but I'm driving a, a used car. I bought for a couple of grand. It's, it's not the luxurious lifestyle that uh, the UFC wants to put out there. They'll, they'll take one person who they've paid well and say, look at what's possible. It's all your fault for being losers. You're not champion, so you could be this way. And when Rob saw that, he decided he was going to do his best to represent all of the fighters. And and formed this uh, this class action lawsuit. And when I, I heard about that, and I made it very clear that I would support something like that if I felt it was just. And so I got involved. I saw that their, their motives were true, that our goal here is just to even the playing field. The, the, if you're winning the game, you're not going to change the rules. Right. For people that say, hey, the UFC, you know, they've been paying more money. Well, their profits have been skyrocketing. And right. the money they've been paying fighters is is a lot less when you compare it to even the money with the sponsorships like in my last fight 11 years ago i made forty four thousand dollars in sponsorships alone for that one night of fighting with the reebok deal the most a champion got paid for a championship fight headlining a pay-per-view was 40 grand I would have been paid $5,000 from Reebok for that fight. Yeah. And you'd have Dana saying, this is what's best for the sport. Boy, the fighters sure do appreciate this. Dealing with sponsors is so tough. Bullshit. No, yeah. you, you, you're, you're treating us like employees. You're, 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 we're independent contractors, but you're treating us like employees. And that's where the difficulty comes when people talk about a fighter's union. Well, independent contractors can't form a union. They can form association. 
But first and foremost, why would you want to unionize under the UFC? All you're doing then is cementing the UFC as the largest organization. And they're already there with 90, 95% of the top tier talent worldwide. And they make 90, 95% of every dollar spent worldwide of MMA. What we want is the free market to set our value. And I think finally fighters are starting to open their eyes when even Francis Naganu tweeted out the other day, uh, Jake Paul or Logan Paul, one of the Paul brothers yeah. fighting Floyd Mayweather and, and Paul got $20 million as I think an, an O and O or one and O or O and one boxer or something like some, something ridiculous, little or Ben yeah. Askren making 500,000 fighting one of the Paul brothers as an O and O boxer. And getting knocked out in the first minute or so. And then you see guys that are that have a title, that are defending their title, that are headlining these pay-per-views, they're at a big casino, and they're walking away with a paltry sum, 10% of what yeah. those guys are making. And it all comes down to the free market. And what the Ali Act does is it it makes sure that no promoter controls the title, there's independent rankings. If you earn your way to a title shot, you get that title shot. And people always point out, well, this guy didn't fight that guy. I get it. It's not perfect, but it's not perfect either. When you have the UFC champion, we'll never fight the Bellator champion. There's no right. negotiation there. It's this, this organization will not cross the line and fight that organization. Whereas if we get the, when we get the Ali expansion act passed, then that Bellator fighter champion may be the number one contender then it's required that those two guys fight and the two organizations need to come to terms and then they bargain with the fighters and figure out this payday. And at that point, anybody can jump in and be the promoter. Mark Cuban can be the promoter. Yeah. As he famously tried to put on Fedor Emelianenko versus Randy Couture and the UFC stopped it. They said, Randy's under contract with us. We're not going to release him. And so you never get to see who truly is the heavyweight champion of the world. So I get it. The Ali Act isn't perfect, but one thing it's done perfectly is it stopped the sport of boxing from being monopolized. And they talk about how Don King was such a bad guy. Don King paid a lot more than than the UFC does to a yeah. champion. And, and we even have have records of of boxers making a million dollars for title fights a hundred years ago with no pay per view points, with yeah. no big casino. It's it's ridiculous. And, and then the argument that, well, MMA is such a, such a, a early sport. Those things don't apply because Muhammad Ali, I can pretty much guarantee you had almost no social media presence. This right. Twitter was pretty weak. <laughs> yeah. None of that stuff existed. You don't grow at the same pace now that you did a hundred years ago. Times yeah. have changed and we see how much money the UFC is making. That's a big thing that our lawsuit did. It made the UFC show their numbers and where the fighters are getting 16, 18% of the take. Whereas in the NFL, the athletes get 50% or roughly 50. The same right. with baseball and basketball because they have collective bargaining. And in boxing, the most comparable sport, quite often it's not uncommon that the boxers will actually get 85% of the purse or 85% of the take because they are the draw. And mm -hmm. if a promoter doesn't want to pay them that much, some other promoter will. Because with the UFC right now, they're saying, we're keeping 85% of it, and we'll give you 15% to split among 16, 18 different people. And all it takes is a Mark Cuban or a Jake Paul to come in and say, 
well, we'll put on a fight and we'll give you 50% or 60%. And and it goes up across the board. And then you're going to see fights that you'd never believe. There's not going to be any dodging. People are going to see these paydays. And even the way that the UFC does business, they'll sign these guys to a long-term contract, five fights, eight fights. Their pay is set. The only way it goes down is if they lose. So they need to protect their belt, whether it's the most boring fight ever. It doesn't matter if they put on a phenomenal fight, they don't get a raise for the next one, but they may lose. And if they lose, they lose their championship belt. They lose their pay-per-view cut. They lose their sponsors. So it's much better for them to just safely keep on winning. That sounds like the Tyrone Woodley uh, syndrome there where he was just doing those title fights and, getting these boring decisions but he's like i'm getting paid you know yeah and if if it was the reverse where every fight was a new contract with a new promoter coming in or somebody else bidding on it they'd say you know your last fight was boring yeah you won but people don't really want to see that so we're only going to offer you x amount of dollars as opposed to man you really put on a show you went all out we're going to pay you 10x for that fight so it's better for the sport In general, the only people that are against it are the promoters because then they know that they'll actually have to start paying fighters according to the free market. And another funny thing is that, you know, it's a hard argument for the promoters to come out is those Fertitta brothers. How much money did they make from that selling to that Chinese company? And I don't know. I don't know what the number was. Hundreds of millions. And how much did the fighters get a cut of that? Uh, well they sold the ufc for i believe it was 4.2 billion yeah it was crazy for billions of dollars and the fighters got none of it none of the fighters are the ones that that built the sport the ultimate fighter season one we're the guys that built the sport and it's so funny to me it's it's like we were talking about healthcare earlier what do we need for healthcare we need a patient we need a doctor can we get these two guys to meet maybe we can pool a bunch of money so if this guy needs a big surgery he pays here, maybe through our taxes or something like that. No, wait, the solution is we're going to put in this intermediary, a healthcare insurance provider. And all of these people need paid and the CEO needs to have a mansion and a private jet. So we're going to take 20, 30, 40 million dollars from this patient to this doctor. Yeah. So what, what does it take for fighters? Well, we need a fighter. We need fans to watch. No, wait, you need a promoter that's going to keep 85% of the money because, well, they've got to rent the venue. Are you kidding me? Uh, no, the promoters should be an afterthought. And if you think about like Muhammad Ali, everybody has an opinion on him, whether you, you love him and what he did, what he stood for, or if you think he's some draft dodger and, and you like somebody else, name the belts that he felt fought for. Nobody remembers, right. nobody cares. They just know he was the heavyweight champ. He was the man. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to. And today we have, and, and the UFC has made this clear, they've modeled their business after pro wrestling. And that's really what it is. If in the NFL, you had Minnesota Vikings going to, to play against somebody else and, and Roger Goodell came in and said, look, Minnesota, you just don't have that big a fan base. We're going with New York and LA this year. And Minnesota's like, but we're undefeated. Yeah, we know, but this is what's best for the sport. That's not how sports work. If you earn your shot at the Super Bowl, if you earn your title shot at the belt, you get that shot. 
Otherwise, it's just manipulated entertainment. And I've heard story after story of athletes who were ready for their title shot and the UFC said, cool, well, you need to sign this long-term contract, sign away all your rights. And they said, well, can you at least pay me a little bit more? Oh, you're too afraid to fight. We yeah. get it. We'll pass on you. And there was the UFC. I don't know if they still do it, but they had a the UFC fighter summit. And they'd fly in all the fighters from around the world and put us up at a hotel for a couple of days and just preach to us about social media and, and nonsense. And somebody there said, at what point are you going to put up a ranking that we can depend on so we can see who's going to get the, the title shot that they've deserved? And Dana White started laughing. He said, I don't give a fuck who you think deserves a title shot. Uh, I put together the fights that sell pay-per-views. Wasn't that, was that John Fitch that did that? No. No. I do I'm remember sure hearing that. I do remember hearing that story with the, and Dana's the mouthpiece, obviously, for all this stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's a love him or hate him guy too. Um, but, you know, it's just, I, the UFC used to, especially Dana, his big thing used to be, trying to prove that they were a real sport a major sport and then every other major sport has a union based contracts or you know like like you said boxing is a little different with the but but then when it came right down to it they sold out to Reebok into China eventually to the Chinese business and they don't they don't really care about you know they made their money yeah you know, and I think, and then they get these TV deals too. The fighters don't get a cut when they sign with Fox or when they sign with ESPN or, you know. One of the biggest slaps in the face was at one of these UFC fighter summits when they announced all of a sudden that all main events are going to be five rounds. And we're sitting there going, so we went from a title shot being five rounds and now we just randomly have to be ready for to fight for 25 minutes instead of 15. That's a huge difference. Are we going to get a, a, a bump in pay two thirds more? No, but this is what's best for the sport. And you've all signed your long-term contract. So there's nothing you can do about it. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And they famously lock with those contracts. If a fighter tries to retire and they want to sign with Bellator or something a couple years down the road. The UFC says, oh, you still have two fights with us. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't do it. You can't break your contract. And yeah, if the UFC doesn't want to let you go, it's very difficult to do so. Or you have to sit for at least another year, fight out your contract, and then there's this huge matching period where you can only deal with the UFC for a period of time, and then they have the right to match period. So if you don't want to fight for the UFC, you have to sit out for an extended period of time. And and fighters have a very short shelf life. Yeah. We can't afford to do that, and that's what they were doing with Randy when he wanted to fight uh, Fedor. They knew, man, you're you're close to the end of your career. If we just tie this up in courts for a couple years and we don't offer you any fights, your career is done. So you're going to come back and fight for us or what? And he, they broke him for it. Yeah. That's just crazy. Um, yeah, I think one of my questions was going to be about the explain the Alley Expansion Act, but you kind of did already. Um, so I guess my last question to wrap this up was the um, – the antitrust lawsuit started in 2014. 
Um, it's 2021, obviously. How is it progress? Like, where where are you guys at with it? Uh, things are going great. We knew that this was going to be a, a very long term fight, but it was something that we were willing to engage in. No longer how, no matter how long it takes. Uh, our the judge just gave us a class action status for for all of the fighters. We're just waiting on his written opinion on that now. Because this is such a big lawsuit, our expert, our financial expert, Hal Fletcher, estimated damages on the low end of around $800 million. If you win in a suit like this, damages are tripled. So we're looking at a $2.4 billion settlement should it go the distance and, and we win that judgment. So that's nothing to sneeze at. That means that the UFC is going to circle the wagons. They're going to do everything that they can to try and win this by any way that they possibly can. So it's just going to take time, but getting our, our class action status granted, that was huge for us. And then boy, something else with the Ali Act, when the original Ali Act was passed, and I don't have the numbers right in front of me, so excuse me, I'm maybe a little off here and there, but I'm, I'm mm-hmm. roughly correct. There were 16 signers to the bill, and this was the introduction of a whole new law there was more Democrats that signed it than Republicans. And it passed famously, went into effect, really did a good job at managing the sport, did not allow a promoter to monopolize the sport of boxing. So when we went down to DC four or five years ago to work on the Ali Expansion Act, we had 58 signers on our bill. We had more Republicans than Democrats. And uh, the committee working on our, our bill said, oh, this is such a minor change. All you're doing is changing the word boxer to combatant. We're going to put this up to the floor for a vote in a week or two. We'll be good to go and pass it in. We were fully expecting it to, to move straight into law. Then we had a change in the administration and Donald Trump took the White House. And you may have noticed Dana White is one of Donald Trump's good buddies. So Dana White is visiting the White House and Donald Trump is visiting UFCs. All of a sudden, this bill with 58 signers gets killed in committee. And the head of our committee was a Republican based here in Oregon. I want to say Greg Ogden, who has not returned to any of my calls, tweets, messages, emails, because I want to know what happened to our bill, why it died in committee with 58 signers. Mm. Well, it's clear. And that's just so unfortunate that in, in America today, it doesn't matter how much of the country, how many of the people want these things to pass. All it takes is a billionaire cronyism to show up and say, hey, I'll lose a bunch of money if this law gets passed. So could you kill that? And yeah. it does. So every time I see a fighter standing arm in arm with Donald Trump and Dana White, I'm sitting there going, do you have any idea what they've done to you? They're artificially suppressing your wages by maybe 90%. Mm. But you have guys that that are willing to fight for a sandwich. And then you give them a steak dinner and they thank you for it. Like I say, a starving man will thank you for a crust of bread, even if you're the one starving him. Yeah. Once we get the Ali Expansion Act passed, once we win this lawsuit, the sport will be changed. And the UFC can stay top dog for all I care. Why would I want them to stop? They're, they have the most money. They put on the best shows. They can go ahead and continue running it, but now they're going to have to pay the fighters their true value. So yeah. it's time for these fighters to really wake up and try to do something about it. Uh, Francis Nagano, I, I appreciate the tweet saying, hey, what are we doing wrong? Why aren't we getting paid more? Yeah. Come to D.C. with us. You will make an impression 
at Washington, D.C., walking the halls of Congress, telling Congress that they need to change this law for the betterment of fighters here Mm -hmm. and around the world, because it it will change the lives of so many people. And if you're truly small government or if you're truly pro-worker, then you want the free market to dictate these things. Yes, and very famously, too, Kobe Bryant, before he passed away, he wrote a big thing in the Players' Tribune saying the UFC needs a... needs to get a union going, needs to pay their fighters, uh-huh. you know, and people were like, wow, Kobe's saying that. I mean, he's the, one of the biggest NBA stars too. So it always amazes me how when someone like myself or, or John Fitch, Kong Lee, Kyle Kingsbury, we, we speak up on this. We're, we're told, no, we're just bitter and angry because we're failures that our career didn't go like, like we wanted it to. You should just shut up and take whatever they're offering you. Now, call me crazy, but I think it's actually braver to fight for what you feel you deserve than sitting there like some kind of puppet and saying thank you every time somebody breaks you off that crust of bread. That's such an interesting uh, way of thinking to me that the people that are out protesting to change the world are told by the strong, tough guys to just shut up and and take whatever the world wants to give them. I, I, I find that very, very interesting. It's such a weird mentality. The, I I know you and I could go on for another hour about the Republican mentality, and uh, that's probably another podcast down, down the line. But, Nate, it's been awesome talking to you. Um, pl- plug anything. Plug the, the, the website. Anything else you want to plug? Uh, go to zombiecagefighter.com. We should have the, the store open probably within a month where you'll be able to buy awesome shirts like the one I'm wearing or the, the zombie cage fighter statue or the graphic novel. Uh, I'm mostly on Twitter these days at Nate Rod Corey. I'm going to apologize in advance because the content you're looking for probably isn't there. <laughs> I am, I'm very vocal about the things that I believe. But if you do, if you want to have a discussion, if you think I'm wrong on something, point it out to me, man. Show me some links, show me some evidence, because I I want the situation to be right. I don't want to go in thinking I'm right right now all the time. I grew up in a cult. I don't want that cult mentality. Yes, I believe the left needs to toughen up a little bit, but which is the bigger sin? Someone being lazy or someone being greedy? And uh, a lot of what I point out is just the blatant hypocrisy that I see over and over again, especially now as the Republicans are ranting and raving about some nonsense, but they were completely silent when Donald Trump was doing 10 times the yeah. worst things. That's it, it's the hypocrisy that gets me. You're a great follow on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> unless if you're a hardcore Republican person, you're not going to like it, but you do it. You, you do have conversations and you're not afraid to like go back and forth with somebody, which a lot of people don't even do. They just comment and walk away, but you I see you a bunch of times where you'll have a 10, a 10 comment thread going back and forth with somebody else. Even some UFC fighters talk to you, some, some of those guys. Well, sometimes I, I, I labor under this, this ideal that once someone has shown the facts and the truth that their minds will be open. And, and there was one fighter, there was a couple of fighters actually, they're repeating this nonsense about uh, Biden speaking at the KKK Grand Wizard's funeral. <laughs> My response is always the same thing. Boy, that sounds terrible. Let's look into it. Yeah. And so the first time I saw it, I did look into it. And it was, oh, yeah, he did speak at the funeral of a man named Bird, B-Y-R-D. He was not a KKK Grand Wizard, but he was pretty high up in the KKK organization. 
he also was famously quoted as saying that was the biggest mistake of my life. Yeah. He completely turned his life around. And you know that because the head of the NAACP and Obama also spoke at his funeral. Yeah. And it was just, just a few weeks ago, Ted Cruz, which you shouldn't be surprised by anything that waste of space does. Yeah. But he put it out there too. Biden spoke at the head of the KKK's yeah. funeral. And then it starts all over again because people just, they, they don't have that critical thinking ability. They whenever I the headline see, and yeah, whenever I see something like that, I always say, that sounds terrible. Let's look into it. Or that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I'd like to look into it. And when people say, oh, the Democrats do stuff terrible too. Yeah, you're right. And point it out to me and I'll agree with you that it's terrible. But when I point out the terrible stuff that the Republicans do, I get radio silence from so many of you yeah. because you have your team chosen. And it's, it's just really a sad thing. And by saying both sides are equally guilty, all that really does is gives you permission to not be involved. Right. What difference does my vote make? Because they're, they're both terrible. You know, if we were to break down the Democrats, I wouldn't be surprised if 60 to 80 percent of them were terrible, taking money from big business. But it's that 20 to 40 percent that I have hope for. The yeah. ones that are saying, no, we need to end our for-profit prison system. We need to look at our healthcare system. We need to move more towards socialized healthcare where we're getting a better deal. It will cost less than what we're paying right now. And then you look at the Republicans, no, 100% of those guys are corrupt. Yeah. And if I'm wrong, send me the link. Show yeah. me the person that's not. Because I've seen Republican congressmen that I respected standing outside of a committee where they were going, the Democrats are holding this impeachment on Donald Trump and they won't let us in the room. And I'm like, motherfucker, you left the room to come out for this photo op. Yeah. You have lost all the respect that I would have given you. Yeah. It just amazes me. And, and then seeing guys like McConnell who are, my goal is to make sure Obama is a one-term president. My goal is to make sure nothing Obama wants to come through. My goal now is to block 100% of everything Biden's doing. Yeah. And we see guys, and I'll point this out to Republicans, and they'll say, oh, man, man, McConnell, can't stand that guy. But I'm going to go ahead and vote across the board for the GOP to yeah. ensure that McConnell's in power. I've got it. Yeah. So the next time someone tells you, oh, well, what would Ronald Reagan say? The worst words in the world to hear are, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. Don't elect somebody that says that. Yeah. Don't hire someone to do a job that says the most incompetent person to do this job is the person you just hired. Hire me to do this job. No, yeah. hire somebody that wants to be a public servant who understands the responsibility of rebuilding our roads, fixing our broken down water, that the pure capitalism is not going to solve this. Capitalism didn't get lead out of our gasoline, didn't get asbestos out of our walls. We need no. a capitalist society that's governed by the people. We, the people, it's, it's very frustrating for me. Yeah. And, you know, just a quick point too: seatbelts that, that one guy, that one guy, uh, he ran for president a few times. He, he had to fight for years to get them in cars Nader. Nader, yeah. It just, you know, capitalism will save you, but, you know. Uh, capitalism exists to make money. To yeah. Make profits. That, that's it. And the government is supposed to be the people's employee that are looking out for us. And 
boy, as, as great a job as Nader did on that, he's one of my most hated characters in history. Because if he didn't run against yeah. Al Gore and G.W. Bush, we would have gotten Gore. So yeah. what happens if we get Gore? Arguably, we would not have had a 9-11. Definitely, yeah. we would not have invaded the wrong country. We would not have invaded Iraq. We would have been focusing on climate change, on all these things. And is he perfect? I'm sure he's not. But my God, he's much better than the incompetence that we got from GW and then Dick Cheney, the puppet master, even though the puppets he's controlling are sock puppets. It's just... Uh, it's funny just uh interestingly enough the last podcast episode i did i did a hypothetical deep dive on uh what would have happened if there was no 9-11 and uh i just kind of broke that down and stuff and gore might have ran again he he probably was planning to and he probably would have won because the economy was crashing pre-9-11 pretty hard and um then of course after 9-11 bush you know, got the pro, you know, he had the whole boost pro America, but it's a whole interesting hypothetical. What if, but yeah, it's uh, uh, crazy. But again, Nate, I took up a lot of your time here. Um, it was a great podcast and uh, I'll talk to you later, man. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yep. Bye.